if you give your best, if you just try your best, and you accept that that is going to be different on different days for various reasons, then you can't do any more than that. And if you haven't, if you haven't done things, you know, as well as you might have done on another day, but you showed up with a pure intent and you really did mean the very best for the circumstances, and even in the situations where you kind of didn't, you still get a chance to wake up tomorrow and do it better. And that, my friends, is Hayley Talbot. Hayley is a professional chameleon. After a legal career in maritime and aviation, she moved into integrated marketing and copywriting and has written campaigns for some of the biggest fashion houses in the world. An author, poet, slam poet, she advocates for her community, which is deeply connected to her heart. She's an adventurer, ambassador, and passionate about the environment and the elevation and women and girls. In 2017, Hayley was the first person to solo kayak the 400-kilometre Clarence River from source to sea, surviving off the land and river. She's a full-time director of Blank Space, along as her role as National Operations Manager of James Baroud. This conversation talks about the relationship that we have with ourselves, as well as the ones that we have with our parents, our partners, our children and our community. We discuss the balancing desire of the hustle and bustle of a city versus the connection that we can have in small communities, particularly when they're ones where your roots have been sown as a child. Hayley shares tragedy and how she's turned it into power, how she's mastered her mind and the spiritual journey as a female adventurer. This is a special conversation and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Sam Gash Podcast, where I chat with peak performing individuals about their why, their how, the challenges that they face, as well as their vulnerabilities, strategies, and tactics. I believe these guests will empower you to find small ways every day to create a positive impact for you and your community. I want these shared insights to have the power of a positive ripple effect for lots of people and their communities. And in times such as these, I think we can all do with a little positivity in our lives. I'm your host, Sam Gash, a former corporate lawyer turned endurance athlete, international keynote speaker and social impact entrepreneur. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the podcast, Hayley. It's super great to finally get you on here. When I created the podcast, you were definitely one of the first names of people. I was like, I need to get Hayley on here because she represents someone who obviously has incredible talents at mastering skill sets, um, but you're also someone who is very, has a strong advocate for using those talents for a social impact. So particularly the work that you've been doing over the last, you know, 12 months directly related to your community. Sam, I'm so excited and I'm so proud of you and for you for, for making this happen and for I just think you're amazing how you've kind of clicked your fingers and snapped into gear. It was such an amazing pivot from, you know, your keynote speaking and the way that, you know, the world kind of just shook off its axis there and you got this podcast going. I've loved every single episode and it is my great privilege to join you. I'm really, really happy. Oh, you're too good to me, Hayley. We definitely are um, supporting Adventure Soul Sisters. And I do want to give you a massive congratulations because you just completed the Calendar Club. And I'd love to understand, you know, what was the, what were some of the takeaways that you had from the Calendar Club? And also, why did you actually sign up for it? 
Oh, what a journey. It, it really was. I think it was so funny. I saw you posted on Instagram and you said that you were doing it. And I thought, oh, that sounds amazing. I'm definitely going to do it. And I messaged you straight away. And I think we all decided either the day of or the day before or something. Like we, we kind of just saw it and pounced. And I was definitely in that category. I thought, yeah, this sounds like an amazing challenge. It sounds like um, something really positive to focus on um, through this time of sort of uncertainty and upheaval. And um, and it was, you know, I kind of very much took it day by day. I never tried to swallow the month in its entirety. Um, there's a, a quote that I like. It's not very poetic, but it illustrates the point that how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? And, and it was a quote that I kind of echoed in my mind a lot on the river journey that I did. And I took a lot of the mindset stuff that I've been working on for probably the last five years um, most intently um, into this, this month-long journey. And I, I didn't have any doubt that mentally um, I would be able to deploy some of the tools that I've gathered um, physically, I wasn't hundred percent sure. Um, I, I know that I'm in pretty good Nick. Um, and I know that, um, my body is a dutiful servant of my mind. Um, but this was a, this was a, a solid physical undertaking. And, um, and I mean, I had a, a car accident when I was younger and I'm, I was pretty seriously physically compromised and, I just wanted to have a go at this. I wanted to try it and and I absolutely loved it. And I learned so many fascinating things through the process of self-reflection and having nearly 100 hours in my own mind through this journey um, running and then also being in this amazing group that you put together. You you pulled together this motley crew of runners from around the country and the camaraderie that we had and that grew day by day was something so incredibly beautiful that I feel like I've made really, really close friendships with people that I've actually never even met. You've done obviously a lot of adventure stuff and we'll talk about your insane solo kayak across the Clarence River. But in terms of long distance running, this isn't something that you've had a huge amount of experience in, is it? Absolutely not. No way. Um, it was something that, yeah, like I think we all we all came out the other side having run something like 760 kilometres, something in the order of that, which is which is a, a solid undertaking and um, definitely not, you know, I was very much learning on the job um, across the, the, the month of the calendar club and I loved being in a group of different types of runners, some professional runners, um, people with a lot more knowledge than me and I was sponging as much of it as I could and I was applying things as I went. I mean, you asked me throughout that month some of the most rookie runner questions from what socks? What socks should I wear? Um, you also were wearing two bras, which gave you the most horrific chafing that I have ever seen in my entire life. Um, to what food you should eat on the run? So, what made you believe, despite the fact that you've never done something like that before, that mentally you'd be able to will your body through it? I think that I've spent. A lot of time honing that side. I definitely was 
such a rookie when it came to this month. Um, and as an, you know, I'm not a professional athlete, but I would say that the mental side of my game, I have prepared as an elite athlete for at least the last five years. I have dedicated myself to studying people who are the top of their game and cherry picking wisdoms from everywhere I'm a sponge for people that have got you know different experiences and more knowledge than me I'm a prolific journaler I I write I take notes all the time and for me I think the probably that my the huge step beyond the comfort zone for me was that river journey and the belief that I you know come hell or by high water I was going to pull that off and come home to my family and once I stepped over that threshold of anything is possible, I saw that it really was. And so when I stared down the barrel of the calendar club, mentally I had absolutely no doubt I'd pull it off. None. No, there was not not finishing it was never an option. And I sort of uh, just sort of set about testing my body physically, I guess. And yeah, <laughs> there were definitely some some challenges to overcome. That thing, oh my god. I think you definitely set the tone for commitment. And I, in the early days of the calendar club, was very lackadaisical and relaxed about it. In fact, I even wrote a post saying, you know, I'm only going to do this for as long as it feels right, which is a very different attitude than what I normally have when I'm tackling something as enormous as that is. I typically believe you've got to have like 150% unwavering commitment because there's going to be a multitude of reasons that are going to make you want to quit that if the commitment's not there, you know, you're almost setting yourself up for failure. But the way I saw your commitment play up is that you got up every single morning even on like from like the second week at like 4.30 a.m. and you got your miles done really early in the morning. And they got to this point where I was like, why am I leaving it to the very last of the day when the chance of not doing it is super high? And so I definitely started to kind of follow your lead and I started to see everyone do a really similar thing. What made you believe that getting it done early in the day was going to be a part of your success? It's a really great question, Sam, because I know myself well enough that I would rather, uh, to me, the pain of getting up in the dark with an early alarm clock going off and knocking out a run was way less painful than the mental anguish of having the run hanging over my head all day. I knew that if I set the alarm early and I got up and got it done, it was a non-negotiable, it was done for the day and I could go home get to work, be present for my kids, um, try and have a level of normality in our lives as a family and have the calendar club not encroach too much on work, family and whatnot. And towards the end, um, you know, that got challenging because I wasn't breaking the miles up. Um, My body was tired and and whatever else, but my runs were like, you know, I was coming out at five and six hour runs. So I was having to get up earlier and earlier to try and honour that. And, yeah, I'm glad it was only a month. <laughs> oh, that's – don't forget what you said to me two days before the month was over. I get this text message from Haley going, what do you think about us going and doing it again in the month of May? You know, I want to support <laughs> a, another group of women 
who have shown interest to do it. And I think, you know, how about you and I do it again in May? And what was my response to you? You were just like, sit down, sis. We're having a rest. No way. It's the month of Mark and the month of my my husband. Yeah, it's the month of Mick. And uh, what's his name? Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, you were like, just cool your jets, love. Oh, but I love that. Like you've got this <sighs> unbridled enthusiasm one for commitment and and also for tackling things well beyond your known. And I think one of the powerful, there was two powerful stories that you shared with me during the run. And the reason I can say this is because every single day during the run, Hayley and I would call each other. And we kind of lived this idea of how do we live life on the move, which also means how do we connect to people on the move? Um, so I almost felt like we were living our like work life and, and having a conference call and talking about ideas and concepts and, you know, hopes and dreams and aspirations. And, and two things really stood out for me. The, the first thing is we talked about the safety of women, particularly because we were running really early in the morning on our own in the dark and you shared a, a quite a scary experience during the calendar club. And the second one is your reconnection to something quite tragic that happened to you as a kid where you almost kind of lived out that experience in full circle of the very strong, confident woman that, you know, you have built yourself to be now despite all the odds. So if we first touch base onto the experience that you faced on a, a safety perspective and, you know, what was that conversation that we had? That was such a powerful conversation to have because I think, you know, that sense of, yeah, like, I mean, because I was doing those runs really early, there was one particular morning that was things kind of felt a bit off and I got into a little bit of a pattern of running the same kind of route and at the same time and whatever else and, and there was an area that I was running in and, yeah, I'm kind of kicking myself for being so complacent now, but uh, there's a, a break wall section where we live and I'd gone to the end of it and as I was running out, I, I, it was really, really early. Like I passed a guy who he didn't have any lights, he didn't have any fishing gear, he wasn't in training gear, he was in trackies and a footy and just looking pretty shady. And anyway, I, I, I was only that I, my headlamp caught him and I generally run in the pitch black. I often don't run with the headlamp on. I'll, I'll typically turn it off because I just don't want people to know that I'm there when I'm running at that time of like, you know, in the pre-dawn. I would rather just get on with my run and not have to have any type of conversation or interaction. So I typically like to run in the shadows, but on this section I put my headlamp on because it was so dark and then there was this guy Anyway, I ran past him to the end and as I got to the end, I'm always hyper aware of my circumstances. I'm always on alert when I'm out by myself and I'm used to seeing the outline of the boulders at the end every morning in the pre-dawn as the, the glow of the dawn starting to come up from the horizon. I know what the rocks look like and they looked different and as I got a bit closer, I could see there were three guys standing at the end and they weren't doing anything they they would they look like they were just waiting they had their arms folded and I just immediately just hit the brakes turned around and just legged it full tilt back you know it's I think it's nearly a two kilometer run back to a place where 
you've got an exit strategy because it's a break wall. It's going, it goes right out into the ocean. And I calmly called my husband. I just said, this is where I am. I've just, I've got one guy on the other side of me. I've got three guys on the other side of me. I'm on a break wall. I'm just, I'm talking loudly so that they can hear that I've called you and I'm letting you know where I am. And I've never actually, you know, Mick and I have been together about 12 years now and I've never had to make a call like that to him before. I've had to make two or three of those types of calls to my father in my life, but that was the first one that I had to make to my husband. And yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty serious, but ultimately it ended up, you know, fine. And and I remember calling, you know, I spoke to you not long after that. You were out running at exactly the same time. And and we sort of traded some experiences and stories around that. And it's just about how that feeling of feeling hunted and that you're prey as a woman is something that is never too far from your awareness when you're out by yourself, especially in the dark. Yeah, that's true. When you told me that, that was that was terrifying because it's really my greatest fear when I'm running. Like I don't really care so much about getting injured. I feel like I can cope with that. Yeah. But the idea of my safety being impacted, but more, I think importantly, the idea that I don't have freedom to just run without that fear is something that I really hate. Yeah. Um, and so I think there are some women who don't think about it when they run and and I don't know if that's maybe because I've never had an experience or they just happen to run in the daytime, but I think it can happen anywhere. It can even happen in the daytime, but obviously your risk becomes high when you're in the dark and there's less people around. What has mm. made you so attuned to that at risk? My dad is um, an incredible martial artist. He He is... He's trained all over the world and his knowledge and his diligence um, in applying himself to perfection in his training is is breathtaking. And so from the age of about three, I'd go to karate with dad. He, he would teach people and he would instruct everywhere and I'd go to his classes and just copy the moves on the side and, um, and I, he started training me properly from yeah, from a pretty pretty young age and I've got to train in some pretty amazing locations myself back in a village in Japan where he honed his craft and, and in the South Pacific and some pretty cool places and and Dad kind of, he was always preparing my mind and my awareness in that way from a really young age um, but the turning point in my training was when I was preparing for my river journey and I went from being a martial artist that, you know, was skilled to really training these skills with the mongrel that it requires to actually protect your life in a life and death situation. And and once I started training like that with that spirit, like I'd go to karate and every single technique in my mind was training to disable an attacker dad noticed that shift in my approach to my training and he started training me differently as well and um and I saw him in his the way he was training me there were moments where I didn't recognize him that spirit came through and I saw I would see my own father transform into something else and I thought that's that's the power that I want. I want that. I want to know that when push comes to shove and I need to use this, that it's going to work. And so I think that was kind of a big part of the shift 
um, in the type of karate that we train, we train for, for Ippon, which is one hit, one kill. It's basically training for one flawless moment and it can take a lifetime to experience that moment. But, but when you feel it or when you get close to it, it's euphoric. And so I really love that, that deep philosophical side of the martial art that we train. And, and I love that my two little boys now are training with dad and I, my dad trains the kids and, and we sort of have that experience of passing that knowledge down. So, yeah, I guess that really honed my awareness and certainly with the river, my, my intention was always to, to see anyone before they saw me. That was always my power. Um, karate, I actually never want to use it. I never want to go hand-to-hand with anyone. Um, I want to know that I've, I've deployed all that awareness to avoid a hand-to-hand situation. And coming down the river, there was a section that I was warned about numerously by different people who know the area. There's sort of like a, it's kind of colloquially known as the Bermuda Triangle. It's kind of an area where the police local area commands don't claim dominion of and it's a bit of a no man's land. And I'd been to see the police before I went up there and I told them what I wanted to do and you know they they had a a few kind of choice comments for me and I'd been to see an Aboriginal elder up there when I was um, getting the permissions to come down through these Indigenous nations and he kind of left me with a bit of a chilling sort of a comment and it was you know you seem a lovely girl I wouldn't want to hear the news and so I was getting all this information coming through I was pretty nervous when I went up there and um, but ultimately Again, was it enough to make me not go? No, it wasn't. It just made me prepare even harder for what I might face. In terms of, you know, the safety of, of you know, female runners, um, what do you think are some um, advices that you could share to improve your chance of safety or, or at simply just increasing your awareness of your surroundings? I think something that is highly beneficial for women and you don't need any martial arts training whatsoever is, it, you know, if you are attacked, if, if, you, if you have to go hand-to-hand is to have a, a rock, a rock, you know, run with a rock in your hand. It can also function as, as a little weight as well. But, the, you know, you can cause massive damage with a rock in a hand and just a, a slap to the face, you know, to the temple. Um, that's something that's really, really powerful. Um I guess it's it's just if the awareness is key. It's just having an awareness of what's around you, and you can't always know. I mean, I that was so rookie of me to think that I could be running out the end of a break wall with no exit strategy every day for a month, and you know who knows if who knows if the people that were out there were aware of the pattern that I was running each day, or if it was a chance encounter. But either way. I put myself in a dangerous situation that I probably could have made a better choice on. For instance, just not doing that section in the pitch black, but waiting until the sun was up a bit when other people are out exercising. And so awareness, awareness number one, and, you know, a a rock in your hand. If you're on the beach, sand is incredibly powerful self-defense for women, just sand in the eyes. Um, kicks to the shins, you know, a solid kick to the shin is is a really great way to disable a person. But again, you don't want to be in a situation where you have to go hand to hand. You just want to know what's around you so you can act. And 
I think that's probably the best advice. Yeah, I mean, and, and what I will say is even if you do have something um, in your possession that could be used as a self-defense weapon, if you're in that situation, you might not always have the capabilities of even knowing what to do. And I can say from personal experience, and obviously, uh, you know, I interviewed Jen Steinman, the filmmaker of Desert Runners, and and in that film, Desert Runners, I um, had a situation, as we're talking about, where my um, personal safety was definitely threatened during a race. And I had poles um, in my hand at the time, which certainly could have been used as a weapon, but I was completely paralyzed with fear and didn't do anything. And so what I would say is awareness of where you're running because you don't know how you're going to respond in those situations. So I think some things are if you can run um, in the light, it's always preferable. But I am also aware that, um, you know, women who are training and who are working and who have kids don't always have the luxury of, you know, daylight hours to train. And we still want to be able to be capable of being physically and mentally strong in our sport. So it requires training. Obviously, it's always desirable to be able to run with someone else, male or female. Being in a pack is always going to increase your chance of, of being safe and not having um, a predator come your way. Uh, and I think, you know, things that we said before, like there's um, obviously we there's Strava these days. So we do publish our routes quite a bit, but Strava also has like the the tracking beacon, which you can send to your family member that can keep you safe. Um, you know, don't always wear headphones that stop you from being able to be aware of your surroundings. So there's a lots of things that we can do. Um, but it does make me think like, Hayley, like you've got self-defense training, which makes you a lot more comfortable with the idea of, you know, maybe doing something to the next step, um, which you know, I kind of wish that I was trained in self-defense when I was younger, but it also never too late really to learn some basic skills in that space as well. Definitely. And I think um, probably what I what you train when you're doing this repetition and you're putting in these hours is I like to think that, you know, you're training in the reflex so that it's second nature. You're training in skills so that, if an opportunity um, presents itself, you know, and you need to use your training, that it just springs forth and you don't have to think about it. Um, because as you say, like, it, you never actually really know what you're going to be like under pressure. And, um, and that's, again, I sort of really believe that you want to be several steps ahead. You always, to, to me, my greatest number one defence is just knowing who's around me before they know that I'm there. Yeah, your mindset is second to none. Um, and I think some, I sometimes try and go like, how is Haley's mind so strong and clear? And you've obviously had some circumstances when you were younger where it's really tested your mental fortitude in addition to the fact that you've been physically and mentally trained with your father from a really young age. And, and during the, the calendar club, one of the runs that you did was going back to where you used to live as a kid. So you ran like a 40K day one day from where you now live to where you used to live. But it was also the setting of where you had a pretty tragic accident. Um, do you feel comfortable sharing that? Yeah, yeah. I think um, that was a really big part of my journey and 
and something that's probably been dormant for many years and was revived um, during the calendar club. Now being in my mid-30s and a mother of two beautiful boys, I, I have such deep compassion for what this journey must have been like for my parents. So it was one of those accidents, I think, that as parents, you know, it could happen to any of us and these moments happen you know, often, but they they usually turn out okay. And um, unfortunately, at this particular time, it didn't it didn't turn out well. And um, we were mum was going to be driving us, dro- dropping me to school, and my little brother was only eighteen months old. And we'd gone out to the car. She'd forgotten her wallet. She ran back into the house and was only gone for the shortest amount of time. But in that time, my eighteen month old brother had. Um, you know, he was he was in the car and he was pressing buttons and moving things and changing things. And I was sitting in the front passenger side seat and thinking, oh, we're going to get in trouble. And I was trying to turn things off. And he's pressing buttons, I'm pressing buttons, and we're all just, you know, pressing everything in the car. And I um, put the car in neutral and we were on an incline and the car started to take off backwards and all of the doors were open because mum hadn't strapped my brother into the baby seat and I didn't have my seatbelt on as my brother lost his balance and was falling out of the door and towards the tyre coming. He was was going to be going out and going under the car. I reached over and I grabbed him around the waist and I pulled him back towards me. Um, But the momentum with which I had lunged to grab him caused me to continue out past him outside of the car and the car collected me and ran me over and the door sort of slammed me in the chest and I had an eight centimetre tear in my lung. Um, My clavicle just popped, my right femur shattered and the weight of the vehicle on my little body um, caused my blood to kind of come out like come out sort of like my, out my eyes and um oh, and, yeah it would have been hell of a sight for my poor mum to come out to um and I remember looking down you know I was still as the car sort of went over me and continued down the hill like I had all kind of tire marks and burns on my legs and I looked down and the car crashed into a house and I threw my eyes that I couldn't see very well out of because of the blood vessels had burst and everything. Um, I saw my little brother standing back on the driver's seat, holding the steering wheel and jumping up and down like it was a trampoline and he was smiling. And I remember getting to the hospital and then my dad, who, he, you know, he was only a young man too. My parents were like in their late 20s sort of thing at this time and dad maybe early 30s and him at, at the time it was a really big deal to kind of stand up to an orthopedic surgeon and he advocated for me in a way that had a massive bearing on my life um the doctor wanted to operate immediately to pin and rod my leg which would have been I would have been opened up from my hip to my knee for this operation and my dad just said no way no way there's got to be another way we, we, there's got to, you just yeah there's got to be another way and he fought for me and and in the end there was we we did this other technique um, which meant I had to stay in bed for at least two months um, I had to sleep at a 
at a 90 degree angle so that my chest would close down and the lung would heal and the clavicle would heal and I got out of hospital and I had to go into a walking frame and I remember being so embarrassed I felt like a little old lady and I was meant to stay on it for eight weeks and I chucked it away after two weeks and was was learning to walk by myself after that time and this whole crazy journey collided on the calendar club on on one of these days we had like a 40k day and um and I ran from my house now where I live to to the house where this happened and just kind of went back there and just gave it a little wave and a and a pretty proud smile and just felt just overwhelming gratitude for this breathtaking miracle of a body that was doing this thing when on paper you know I'd been through a bit of stuff (laughs) oh I mean you're you're remarkable and you know what did the doctors say was going to be your I guess rehabilitation time and did they suggest that you wouldn't be able to be as physically active as you had been beforehand yes yeah and I remember appointments and just other, you know, when I got, we got home from hospital and on one of the first nights back from hospital at four o'clock in the morning, I woke up on the concrete floor crying. I'd rolled out of bed, you know, straight onto my broken leg and mum and dad came in picking me up off the floor like that was a drama. And then because I wanted to not be on the walking frame, there was another moment where I'd, I'd got up and I'd lost my balance at the top of the stairs. And I so clearly remember my dad being on the phone, on, you know, the old curly cord phones, facing the wall on an important work call. And some sixth sense, I don't know what, because I didn't make a noise, I lost my balance and I was falling down the stairs. I can remember clearly looking down the staircase and then this hand just grabbing my wrist and dad grabbed me. Like I was I was definitely going to fall down the stairs and probably would have broken my leg again after, you know, two and a bit months. And, oh, there were moments like that. And, yeah, I guess I remember having to fly to Sydney on these little Rex planes to see the orthopaedic surgeon down there. And it was such a long journey. I For a really long time I had one leg shorter than the other. Um, I had Two, my right leg was two centimetres shorter than my left leg and it corrected. It just grew, it caught up and it took a really long time. And And I think something that wasn't at all addressed back then in motor vehicle claims, and I can contrast it with, um, you know, when I was sort of working in law with motor vehicle accidents where, we, you know, there was always a psych injury tacked on to every motor vehicle claim. Like that, that was never a part of my journey like the psychological side was never addressed with me all all I know is is that for many years after the accident I'd have recurring nightmares where I couldn't save my brother and it was it wasn't always the the car accident that I would have the nightmares with it would be in the surf and he'd be getting dragged away and I wouldn't be able to get to him or we'd be in these we've got these pools here called the blue pools and it's a very deep quarry with a natural spring in it and we'd swim there and And I'd see his face, you know, I'd be trying to swim to him to get to him and I'd see his face disappear under the water and just sink down to the depths. And I just had so many nightmares where I couldn't save him. And so it it did have a lasting impact, I guess. Um, And but it was a really, a really special moment to 
kind of yeah to run to run to this place where this accident happened with this strong capable body that's done a lot of pretty cool things and um to just stand there I mean do you have any I mean it's my fear as a mother that because of something that I do I cause serious harm to my child I can't even imagine what your mum went through throughout that. And, I mean, all she was doing was something that we probably do all the time, quickly jump back in the house to pick up something that you forget. How how did she cope with it? I can only imagine the internal dialogue that she had going on. And I really have a lot of compassion as a mother now for what that must have been like. I know that, you know, I was in hospital for several months and they had – a little baby at home, you know, she had a little baby at home and she was on a trundle bed next to me in hospital for the whole time. You know, I was never left alone and um, my parents were so there for me and um, and that is a conversation that I haven't had with my mother. I haven't had a conversation mother to mother about what that was actually like and um and I think now that I'm reflecting in the accident you know this has been something that's been really dormant and very much in the past until you know a few weeks ago when I did this this when the calendar club kind of revived this part of my story and and I guess now it is probably you know it's going to catalyze that conversation that hasn't been had and um and and you've sown that seed Sam Oh, well, I mean, I remember when you told me this story and I've known you for a couple of years and had had no idea about this. And for me, it's this most, I mean, I've, you've got a bio on your website and that's, it's not even a part of it. And I, the idea that your mobility was on the brink of being completely impacted to the fact that you are now a professional adventurer, um, it, it does show how we can suppress severe adversity in our lives and how but how it will eventually come back up at some point and maybe this is now the time when you've you know physically and mentally found yourself in a different capacity you are a mother of two boys I mean even sharing conversations with every guest so far who's a parent your viewpoint on being a parent affects how you feel about your parents and yeah I think it if it's something that sparks a conversation between, you know, a mum and a mum, that's a beautiful thing as long as it's hopefully in a way that's healing to the two of you. And who knows if it's, you know, it'd be hard to not think that this hasn't been something that's been on her mind her since it happened. And navigating that in a marriage as well, like when I think about that, like just the grace that that must have taken, the guilt, you know, like in our, in our lives as mothers, mother guilt conversation rears its head a lot and um and wow like this would have been such a weight for her to carry and for me like I, you know you kind of you use the word suppress I, I I guess I hadn't really framed it that way um I hadn't thought of it as something I just sort of thought that it was something in in my past you know in a sense but you know my 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 leg is still really sensitive and I'm highly protective of it I can't bear any type of knock there or anything like it is something that 
I guess is physically alive in me. I have an awareness particularly of that right femur and and then yeah I guess for mum maybe it would be healing for her to have that conversation with me because I certainly bear no ill will. I absolutely understand that as mothers, you know, we're, we're always making split-second decisions and it's, most of us are just lucky that they pan out okay. We always try and make these, like, connections from behaviour of our child to the behaviours of what we have, which is, like, a detrimental thing because no one's perfect and we're all learning on the go as well. I think um, I probably had a shift with, you know, not, you know, getting... For a long time, I used a whip on myself to get results. You know, it was just, it was discipline and it was, I was harsh with myself. And I think, yeah, I had a really big shift where I realised that I can get really beautiful results by speaking kindly to myself and, and speaking with love to myself. And I think um, with the kids, it's, it's been such you know, I'm, I'm highly reflective. I journal prolifically. I'm constantly reviewing what I'm doing and what I can be doing better. And a huge epiphany was this idea that if you give your best, if you just try your best and you accept that that is going to be different on different days for various reasons, then you can't do any more than that. And if you haven't, if you haven't done things you know, as well as you might have done on another day, but you showed up with a pure intent and you really did mean the very best for the circumstances. And even in the situations where you kind of didn't, you still get a chance to wake up tomorrow and do it better. And just cutting myself some slack as a mother was game-changing. And I can honestly own now that I am a great mother. I'm a wonderful mother. And I can own it because I've been a terrible mother. I've been, I haven't been at my best. I've been rock bottom. I've been all of the things that I don't admire. Um, And probably that process of journaling and trying to learn, just constantly trying to learn from myself and level up has been um, a journey of self-love and kindness. And I definitely don't beat myself up the way that I used to um and I think yeah that's been a, a big part of the journey I don't know I'm, I'm, I'm still I mean I'm, I'm still working a lot of things out I'm constantly trying to do things better but that's sort of where I'm at at the moment well you certainly don't need my affirmation but I will affirm what an incredible mother you really are and I certainly look to how you are with your children and the adventures that you take them on um, and just the time that you spend with them and how you and Mick uh, interact is definitely something that Mark and I talk about and it's it's really encouraging for me to have you know role models who are a couple of years ahead of the journey because sometimes you feel like you're in isolation and the reality is you don't have to reinvent the wheel. We've, you know, you can, as you said before, like we can cherry pick from what we see of other people and make it work in our own circumstances as well. And I, I do want to look at this, a couple of things of like your career professionally has taken many different um, directions. Um, yeah. Sometimes because you have been a mother, but you know, you studied a law degree, 
you worked in fashion, you worked in magazines, you've been a freelance writer, um, obviously in marketing as well. And now you are an entrepreneur and you, you run a business, you, you run a co-working space. Um, but I kind of want to get a, a gist of like what was um, young professional Haley like and where did you feel um, your time and talents would take you? Wow. Um, so like early 20s, do you kind of mean? Before I met Mick? Yeah, early 20s. Yep, before, oh. pre-Mick. Pre-Mick, yeah, because he upended all of my plans. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> for love, what we do for love. <laughs> oh, my God, that's right. Yeah, I was, wow, I was on a pretty, um, a pretty different trajectory before I met him. It was like I was working at um, an amazing law firm right in the Sydney CBD and I was in maritime and aviation in transport law, which I loved. It was quite a niche area, but it was exciting. And I was working with amazing, inspiring people. And, yeah, I guess I had, for a little while I had eyes on being a barrister and maybe going to the New York bar and, like, crazy kind of legally born dreams, <laughs> I guess. And then I met Mick and it, none of it mattered anymore. None of it within was we knew straight away that we wanted to be together and it wasn't difficult for me to just totally look in another direction and shut the door on those dreams and follow him from from Sydney to the Gold Coast and the same thing happened to him he was going to take a short-term contract on the Gold Coast and then he had virtually like a one-way ticket to South America to travel and um, some 12 years later he's still never been to South America. (laughs) (laughs) There is something beautiful about the two of you surrendering where you thought you were going to be to be creating something entirely different for what worked for the two of you to be together. Wow, I've never thought of it like that, but you're so right. Like we just, we complement each other so well. Actually, you know what, I think that, I've said this a few times, I think Mick would have been any woman's perfect man. Like he's just, he is so incredible. I am a little bit more of an acquired taste. <laughs> I don't think I'm necessarily <laughs> but but um but we're perfect for each other and um we we have a lot of fun. We've got completely different strengths and weaknesses, but we we really do have the same dreams. Or like sometimes I think of I imagine us like there are times, especially, you know, up until recently for six years, he's worked away from us, basically. He's commuted back and forth between our home here and the North Coast and Sydney, which is an eight-hour commute. It, you know, he's done major hours away from us, and it was six-odd years, roughly. And um, sometimes it felt like, you know, we were just two wolves kind of running in a wood, and we'd look at each other through the trees and 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 give each other a knowing look like we know we're going in the same direction but we're just not next to each other right now i felt like we had that for a few years and but he came home for good um at the end of feb right before all of this crazy time kicked off and and so for us like as mad as this time has been this is in no way been the most our biggest challenge to get through. I feel like for the first time in six years, I'm back on a team. I'm not trying to raise two kids and run two businesses and do life by myself. Like I'm on a team and we help each other. And 
Um, I just feel really like despite the chaos that's spinning around us right now, I feel really peaceful. Well, you were living with Mick uh, and your two boys in Sydney. What brought you to kind of move back to Yamba where you live, which is obviously for those who don't know Yamba, uh, it's because it's a much smaller community. Um, It's on the coast. It's got that country feel to it. Uh, It's got bush. It's got surf. You know, what was the decision to kind of be separated from Mick who had professional, really great opportunities, you know, in the city. Why did you go back home? Well, I think, so we didn't kind of mean to go back to the city. I think we tried to move back to Yamba a few times over the years with um, with our first child, Archie, and then when we had our second, um, we bought a little house back here and we tried to move back again. And it was funny, it just wasn't the right time. Like it's as beautiful as it is when you're still young, like there's only so many walks along the beach that you can go on or coffee by the river or whatever before you just feel like a retiree. And I personally, I knew that like I had way more to give than just hanging out in a beautiful coastal village. Like I needed to feel dynamic here to really enjoy the lifestyle. And while Mick still had, um, you know, he, he had good work offers and he he took them and we tried to, to do the commute thing. And, and that was so hard on me early on with little, with little ones. I just remember feeling like, oh, my gosh, I would, I would way rather be at work than like he is, you know, than home doing the groundhog day of small children, you know, I was really trapped in a, in a negative feedback loop at the time of navigating that. And, and so, yeah, we, we'd move back and then we'd move away and then we'd move back because it was so amazing. But then we'd get, you know, we'd feel like, oh, we're not kind of reaching our potential and we're not, yeah, feeling dynamic, I guess. And so he ended up going, to the city and then we were missing each other and we thought okay well this is crazy we need to be together and so I went down there with him and the kids for 2015 and that was worse like that was it was so much harder for me being separated from my community and I had a few kind of good little things that I was getting going before we left I'd started um, a spoken word poetry night and I, I relished getting people in a room together and having real conversations and sharing ideas and um, I've got a little mentoring thing starting to happen as well just between older people and younger people the catalyst was I'd had a couple of conversations in the one week one of them was with my 11 year old neighbor and the other one was with my 70 something year old grandfather and the conversation was exactly the same and it struck me that we can have people um, you know, in our society that are at opposite ends of the life spectrum and can be nursing the same feelings of obsolation and um, and disconnection. And so I wanted to get those types of people together and then document it. And I had all these things swirling. And then I we went to Sydney and I felt more cut off than I'd ever felt. And I was down there with my my little ones and my husband doing massive hours just thinking, I've got important things to say and I need to create a way to be heard and I miss my home and I've spent my whole life where the river met the sea and I've got no idea what's behind this river, I've got no idea what's behind me. I've got these two little faces looking at me every single day for answers and I don't even know who I am. 
how can I offer them something that no one else can offer them? And then I really sort of started to embark on a journey of gathering skills and and metaphorically I was picturing the river, but it that morphed into the, the literal incarnation was, hey, maybe if I actually go to the start of this river and just find my way home, maybe I'll find my way home to myself as well. And so then once that dream kind of crystallised in my mind, it began a two-year journey of, of gathering the skills to be able to do it, you know, of aligning with experts that could teach me how to successfully do this river that hadn't been done. And, um, and it was important to me as well, not just for it to be a physical adventure pursuit, but it was very much a, a spiritual journey for me. I wanted to cut away all of the conditioning and, and all of the, the things that tried to box me and tell me what I should be. Like I just wanted to shut all those voices up and go and listen to myself. And nature was the church for that. And, um, yeah, and so I did that trip in 2017. Um, I wanted to do that as purely and as authentically as I possibly could. My goal was to survive completely off the river and off the land and so I didn't take food or water and um, sustained my life out there with what I could forage and catch and and it didn't end up like a a pure record-setting adventure in that way you know as I got further down the river I would run into the odd person that had you know, want to make me a cup of tea or give me a muesli bar or whatever. And and I wasn't sort of going to be um, really staunch and, and, and egoic on that. Like I would have been systematically rejecting kindnesses and that wasn't the goal of what I was doing. So um, it didn't pan out exactly that way, but in, in terms of the preparation, that was that was absolutely my preparation. And and I brought the boys along for that. You know, I took, as, as I was learning, I was teaching, as I was doing survival courses I was coming home and showing the boys how to set traps and um and taking them for walks in the bush and showing them what we could eat and it was very much a journey of um you know like grow give learn teach I I was just trying to be a conduit of all of this new knowledge that I was getting and and very much bringing them along with it. That is impressive because sometimes when we are as adventurers pursuing an adventurous pursuit we can get very honed in onto that as a individual experience. And we think of our team as the team of people who can equip us, such as for you, you were learning bush survival and navigation and how to hunt and trap, how to forage, you know, how you could use plants for medicinal purposes. And as opposed to just having the experience with the experts to that, you were also passing that on to your children at the same time, which I think it definitely is something that I want to reflect on and, and think about in my own life. Like how can we make sure that when we are being an adventurer, it doesn't have to be a solo selfish pursuit. And I, I want to credit yeah. you for, for doing that and also leading the way on it. I, I do want to understand why was it critical for you to do that journey um, self-supported and to not take, you know, a support team because the Clarence River isn't the safest and, you know, if a source to sea river hasn't been kayaked before, there typically is a, a very um, real reason for that. And so for you not having been a kayaker and not having those type of skill sets, what made you believe 
once again, that you could do something like that and you could overcome the, the immense challenges that you were going to be facing? I think, honestly, it was a very, it was from a very, very deep spiritual place. It wasn't something that originated in my mind. It was something that was calling me out there from somewhere else. And it was, um, a, I mean, it was a huge leap of faith to set a goal like that with no skills. Um, and, but I just believed that, if I if I set that goal and if I when the time came I would be ready because I would just apply myself to the task of being ready and I it just became a journey of reverse engineering the goal and 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 following my nose on the things that I didn't know and and seeking out people that had information that I needed to be safe um, and to to get through some of those areas I mean there's a the gorge up there is is very is a really really dangerous section of the river it's it's impassable I mean it's you can access it from properties near there and it's a the jewel of the Clarence River it is absolutely spectacular but around nine people have drowned there at various times over the years um, at this particular section and so to come down the river and get through that was something that I couldn't just turn up as a novice and expect to through safely I needed to find people who had the experience that could teach me how to get through that section um, same as the the elders that I sought out um, I wanted to do this journey in in peace spiritually as well I wanted to know that these areas that I was going through that people haven't gone through that I wasn't um, upsetting energies going through there and that I had the blessings of um, the, the elders through the three Indigenous nations that I travelled through and um, and learning the stories of the river. I think it, it was so much more than a physical pursuit. It was very much a real rites of passage experience as a woman, even more powerfully than giving birth to my sons. I feel like I became a woman on the river and I was already a mother. Oh, my gosh. I'll never forget when you told me when you got back from the river that there was this part of you that did it because you needed to be alone, like that you wanted to be in nature to have that peace and clarity. But then there'd be times when you were on your own doing this thing that you had longed to do for so long and it had prepped for two years to do. You had overcome the adversity of even your father who was terrified of you doing this and would who would be sending you articles about the safety challenges that you would you would kind of deal with. But you said to me that there was this one night that you looked at the moon and as opposed to enjoying the peace of looking at that moon on your own, you kept thinking, I I feel this sorrow because I can't share this moment with the ones that I love the most, which is my uh, my husband and my children. You know, isn't that that paradoxy of, you know, being a mother? That was a classic moment because I had this night that I had dreamed of in my mind when I was standing at that sink, scrubbing those dreams down the drain <laughs> of the, you know, <laughs> being on a river and with a fire that I'd built with my own hands and being under a blanket of stars. And I got it on night number six, exactly as I had dreamed it at the sink, I got this night. And the, the nature of the sort of week before that was 
was really serious navigating. Like I kind of wasn't pausing and having moments um, of reflection or appreciation. I was intensely in the moment and not really thinking either side of it. And But this particular night um, I had a, a sense of, of safety and, and it was a beautiful night and I had an amazing fire and I remember pulling my journal out to write and I took a deep breath and I looked up at the stars and I remember just gasping and dropping my eyes and I couldn't look at it. It was just too much power and too much beauty and too much magnanimity to take in without my husband and my boys. Like I just, in that moment, I became a mother again. I became a human again. I think I'd been quite wild just before that. And and in that moment, I just, yeah, pulled out my journal and I just wrote and wrote and wrote. And then then the few days after that were when I'd come down to this public land section and and that was the scariest part of the trip. That was when I'd got all of the warnings about whatever you do, don't get off the river. The safest place for you to be is on the water. Just stay on the river for the next, you know, few days. And when you get to the castle, but like there was just, there was a lot of fear around this particular section. And, and then coming down through the gorge as well, I got to the other side of that. So that took me three days to get through that section. And I remember coming down to the lower gorge and that particular night, I laid underneath the stars and I looked up and I laid my whole body under them for the entire night and I just let all of that power fall into me and there was this real sense that I'd earned it. I'd earned those stars. I'd earned the, the privilege of, of looking up and laying under those stars that so many elders from the past had laid under on very various similar journeys of rites of passage and I just became became it and and I had so many revelations that night like you know we talk about ceilings and I was thinking my gosh this, this power feels so close to me I could reach out and touch it there are no ceilings you know everything all of the limits that that we we place on ourselves are just that they're mind created and I just felt so much fall away um I think they were yeah they were the really key um kind of compass points on on that trip those few days and you know having the dingoes calling around me like I'd been so scared of dingoes before I went out and and then I had a few nights where it was one particular night where the call went up on one side of me and it was answered on the other side of me and just experiencing that initial terror and then the letting go and the surrendering and it was to me so much more than an adventure it was it was a real spiritual pilgrimage for me I do want to go back in a moment to like what is your viewpoint on um adventuring from the perspective of female but I want to look at a few of the nuts and bolts more of that expedition because how many hours a day were you actually on the water kayaking well I think so at the time we were living in Sydney and um and I just I knew that I think the first kayak I've still got it I got a $150 kayak off Gumtree I knew that I just needed to start so I just bought like a cheap kayak and I just got on the water I knew I needed to make my body strong and I needed to be confident out on the water and that first paddle I think I put the kayak in at Palm Beach like at the actual beach in Sydney and sort of paddled out really far and was in the waves and had that first kind of feeling of oh my god and actually, Archie, as a four-year-old, as a four-year-old, he looked at me when we were going down and just goes, 
you're living your dream, mummy. Like four years old, he said that. And I remember just tears streaming down my face. I was like, oh, my God, I'm actually living this dream. It's begun. And so I, we were sort of living at Clareville at the time, which is on the pit water. And I was just trying to get out of the water as much as I could. Um, but, of course, with that around mixed work, that was a challenge. I was just slotting that in wherever I could around having him home to look after the kids. And then really just trying to be comfortable on the water and in the outdoors. I really credit Joe Bonington from Joe's Base Camp um, on the Northern Beaches. He was one of the first people that I spoke my dream to life to who didn't laugh at me. He was, he looked at me and his eyes started to twinkle and he was like, yeah, <laughs> you know, I can, I can help you do this. And, and so I was training at his gym. Yeah, really working on the strength and conditioning side. And from there, I was just following my nose. I mean, I actually meant how many hours a day during the expedition were you on the water. Oh. But I love that you just gave it insight. You always jump one step ahead, which is perfect, because it that was my next question. Like, what specific skills did you build up during it? I'd love to know, was it, you had a couple of sponsors for that expedition. Considering that was your first you know, adventure, how hard was it to kind of get more tangible support from organisations? It's really provident, actually, because that was never an intention of mine to work with brands. You know, I kind of just thought, I'm an absolute punter. Who would even be bothered wanting to work with me? Like, I'm, a, I'm I've got no proof in the field whatsoever. Who would be bothered taking a chance on, like, a stay-at-home mum of two kind of thing, you know? Um and who would want to put their, their brand over someone who's going out on a crazy adventure who could just wind up killing herself? Um, so it was something that wasn't on my radar at all, working with different brands. And so how it came about was um, Joe, the North Face had a product launch at Joe's Base Camp and they invited a bunch of adventurers and um, and they they'd said to Joe, you know, what, what are some of the people at the gym, what have they got coming up? And... He, he there were a couple of his guys. One was a polar explorer, and the other one was a an Everest summiteer that was looking to do Everest a different way. And then there was me, and he said, "Yeah, I've got this mum that's training to do this river trip." And um, and so the North Face had said, "Okay, well, you know, if you could get a couple of your members to get up and have a yarn to us when we launch this product range, that'd be cool." And so. I guess I got up in front of, I don't know how many, I think it was a couple hundred people there or 100 or 200, I can't remember, but I remember the room being pretty full and I just got up in front of everybody and spoke this dream to life. I said what I was going to do and um, and I suppose I said it with enough conviction that the North Face wanted to support me and, and help me bring it to life. So I'll always be grateful to them for that. That was just really 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 cool like took a took a chance on me when I was yeah not proven in the field at all I sponsored my gear and um and we've done some cool events um I posted like a speaker series for them and um you know written some blog posts and things for them and um yeah and that kind of led to to other things I guess each thing has built upon the last thing. Um, I did a trip for Leatherman, um, their multi-tool company, um, and I 
got on a really cool kayaking trip with We Are Explorers, an online adventure magazine. And, um, yeah, it's kind of, it, it's, I guess, having that conviction and that unwavering belief in that dream, um, you know, people believed me. They wanted to come with me and it's opened a lot of doors and it's kind of still opening doors for me. I mean, it w- I think it will well into the future because it's now a part of your story um, and you're so powerful at sharing it as, you know, you can probably tell from this podcast, I don't even need to ask a question. I could just like let Hayley talk for an hour and a half on her own, <laughs> which is great. And I've I've definitely encouraged you to, to, to share that story on a public platform, you know, as much as you can because more people need to understand that the journey of being a female adventurer whilst also being a mother and working is not only a challenge but the insights and the rewards that an individual gets is just out of this world and the way that they have an ability to creating perspective for others I think is is really uh, impactful. So but one thing that you do do uh, even if you don't speak all the time is you are an incredible writer and you, you've created a book of your poetry uh, and the work that you do in your community I think is I think it's it's definitely important that you share that now because uh, I think you have a viewpoint that you need to um, act locally and over the last I mean you've been doing it for years but over the last 12 months if you could just shed some light on some of the act locally initiatives that you've kind of brought to life. Thank you so much Sam because that's a really great question Um, and I really appreciate you asking it. Actually that reminds me of this is one of the podcast episodes I listened to. You referenced that quote of Bud Tools, you know, just say say about saying yes. You know, I've I've got to where I am now because I've said yes to so many things and I've given so much of my time and and I am a great believer in the power of of conversation and in and what happens when when people get in a room together and and that exponential power that we have when we share and we collaborate. And that, yeah, reminds me of the podcast with um, Daniel McPherson as well where he was talking about collaboration is king. I absolutely subscribe to that and I've built a business on it. That's what we do at um, my my co-working space here, Blank Space Agency. And I guess um, there there are various incarnations of the way um, my participation in my community has been able to broaden and the, the two main ones at the moment are, um, is a project that I'm running called Caring for the Clarence and this beautiful river that handed me back my life is she now needs me to advocate for her. Um, so the two projects that I've got going on, one is a film that um, I'm producing with my dear friend Dan Ross, who's a professional big wave surfer. Um, we're, we're producing this film with Patagonia and it's about the threats to the river. Um, we've got um, really, really high grades of copper and cobalt in the upper reaches of the river and we've got mining companies breathing down our necks here um, trying to get at those resources and so this film is really a journey of of that story and creating awareness around that and also some of the threats around damming um, some of the tributaries to the river as well which will really alter um, the ecology of the river so that project has happened really organically I guess and but the one that's kind of 
really surprised me in the sense that it has literally grown from a seed that was a conversation and an idea. Um, it was post bushfires. Um, we had a pretty harrowing experience of the bushfires, like many, many Australians did. We were evacuated from our home and our village, which has got three streets, was surrounded on all sides by fire and we were lucky that our homes were still standing and um, we were also lucky that our fires were early in the fire season so we had a lot of resources and we had a lot of help and and our homes were saved and then kind of coming coming out of that we really as a family me Mick and the kids wanted to do something for our our land that you know even though our home was saved I still felt like my home burnt to the ground. Like we live in a national park. I, I spent every single day in it and it was it was just raised to the ground. And I deeply grieved for probably two weeks after the fires and and then we wanted to do something. And our idea as a family was we just want to, you know, we thought, why don't we plant a thousand trees? That's something that we can do that is is tangible and real and we'll have our hands in the soil and we'll you know, not just help locally, but off the back of all of the discourse around climate change would contribute on on a global, um, you know, at least a little bit, you know, on a global level. So um, we decided we plant a thousand trees. I was in here um, at our co-working space and I was asking a conservation scientist that we've got in here her advice on what we should plant because we wanted to plant things that would, would help our home and not um, you know, uh, create any imbalances. And so in in the journey of asking her what to plant, how to plant and how to go about it, um, we, we went on a holiday and she messaged me while I was away and she said, you know, that idea that you've got, if you actually pitch that to me as a project, I could probably get that funded for you and you could do it on a way bigger scale. And so we, you know, so I, I pitched it properly and, um, and I ended up getting funding to plant 5,000 trees in our valley and um, and not just any trees, like the kings and queens of the Australian bush, um, you know, koala and nectar feeder food trees. We've got a resident koala population here. It took a massive hit in the bushfires like, you know, like what happened elsewhere. Um, and so, yeah, now I'm, 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 I'm thick in this project, Caring for the Clarence. We've got probably 600 trees planted so far. We've got another, I've got 2,000 trees getting delivered today. We've got another big plant on this Saturday. Um, and, of course, you know, in the midst of all of this happening, trying to, you know, create connection and healing in our community post-fires, a global pandemic came to town. And all of a sudden, we couldn't get people together en masse to plant these trees. And so um, Saving Our Species, the conservation arm that I'm working with, said, look, we understand if you know, you want to press pause and this isn't going to work right now. And I was firmly of the belief, no way. Like if, if ever there was a more powerful, inspiring, important action to take, it's still to plant trees. And so we pivoted the project so that we could have like strike teams of like family members <laughs> um, planting trees outside, well space, etc. Um, and... Yeah, we've, we've, we've been able to keep moving forward. And the really unexpectedly cool thing that came out of the pandemic was that um, because I couldn't get people together en masse to plant the trees, I applied for extra funding 
so that I could pay people that had lost their jobs from coronavirus to plant the trees. So now not only are we planting trees, but we're actually getting to pay people who are struggling financially through this time as well. So it's something that's become like an environmental issue turned to supporting economically those in your community. And you've got a very, um, you've got a great way of connecting multiple issues through one initiative even if it's not what you initially thought at the beginning. And I know how much work it's gone to actually bringing this to life. And I don't know how you managed to pull so many of the logistics together during the calendar club when I barely had time to think about what I was going to eat for lunch or dinner. And you obviously utilize your support networks of your husband and also the people in your work sphere as well. I'd love to just wrap up this conversation with a couple of insights from you of what you do to be able to create ideas in their raw form and turn them into reality. Because I think there'll be a lot of people who will listen to this conversation and they'll be like, well, you know, I have an idea of how I can support my local community, but the reality is I have no idea how to make it, you know, come to life. I think, um, well, so to give you an example of where I've had a massive dream and it hasn't worked, I mean, I started... I had a really big dream about this, a love letter campaign that I wanted to run a few years ago. That was a really, really big idea, fantastic idea. Um, I still believe that that time will bring me back around to executing that, but it was a classic example of right idea, wrong time. And so sometimes, you know, there are a few different things that need to need to align sometimes. But as you know, Sam, you know, you're so good at this too, like, it's putting the idea out there and it's the conversation. It's the idea, it's the conversation, it's bouncing, it's collaboration. Um, and I guess over the time of doing and participating, of showing up and doing lots of little things, I've gathered a network of people who trust that I will follow through and do what I say that I'm going to do. And so now I'm in a really privileged position where good people want to work with me and so and vice versa so I'm I have a really good network of um of people who who do things and 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 we get together and we do good things together and um and as you touched on with how I pulled this off through the calendar club you know a really big part of that was delegating and trusting it was trusting people around me and feeling that sweet relief that you know, I've, I've got good people around me who are incredibly capable and I don't need to try and do everything myself. And that's been a really great um, benefit. So I would say, as always, just begin, you know, have an idea and reverse engineer it, breadcrumb back to where you are and take the first step. That's, that's the formula that I use for everything. And that's how I've been able to do heaps of things that I don't even know how to do, but I've figured them out. Yeah, I think I think that's great. I think also you don't need to know exactly where it's going to go as well to get started. And a great piece of advice that our mutual Wonder Woman friend, Kemi Neckvapil, always says to me, she goes, I'll, I'll say to her, I've got this idea and it's so complicated. And she goes, if, that, if this idea was to look easy, how would it be? And I think it sometimes makes you distill like what is the critical elements and I think the first one, like you just said before, is you've got to share your ideas because you never know, you know, you've always got gaps in your um, skill sets, in your capacity. But if you share an idea passionately um, with some kind of clarity on the mission, people will fill the gaps 
if you give them that opportunity. I want to thank you for like sharing your story so openly and fully. And I always leave my time with you better for it, Samantha. Every phone call, every conversation. You're an absolute delight. Well, go plant those trees, girl. (laughs) You've got a lot more to do. I hope you guys really enjoyed that. You know, Hayley is obviously incredible with words, but she's, I think the way she has mastered her mind, which has allowed her to physically do things that many people would have told her, particularly as a kid, was not possible for her, I think is really insightful for us. It reminds us that we often are the driving force to determine if we're going to be able to be capable of doing something. And we do need to move beyond what other people say. And if you want something, you actually have to go and give it a try. That conversation was threaded a lot of things that Haley and I spoke about and thought about during the Calendar Club. And when you are running, possibly on your own right now, you know, enjoy that reflection time, but also try not to get too much into your own head. Um, I think there can be an isolation that comes from that too. So remind yourself to obviously be kind to yourself, but communicate verbally uh, with the thoughts that may pop up during that time frame on the run. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you're happy, safe, well, wherever you are in the world. Sending lots of love to you from my home uh, in a national park, 35 kilometres from Melbourne CBD. 